And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Beginning in the uh, 18th century, philosophers started to ask the now famous and famously irritating question, uh, if a tree falls in a forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? This question was uh, first posed to provoke the realization that an observer is an essential part of any observation. And this is mildly interesting as far as philosophy goes, uh, even as it's uh, forever revealed that such a large portion of philosophy um, is uh, tragically removed from the cares of regular life. Uh, my, my dad prefers to tell the version, uh, if a man says something alone in the woods and his wife isn't there to hear him, is he wrong? <laughs> Which actually probably would yield more useful philosophical investigation uh, in the end. So the, the nugget of this sort of uh, commonplace in our, in our culture is that a thing and our experience of it are connected, right? This, true, this is true uh, in every area of our life, including with our relationship with the risen Lord Jesus. What I mean is uh, who he is and how we experience who he is are of a piece. And I'm talking about this because this is a truth that's bound up in this famous passage that we just heard from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And and it's bound up in a wordplay that, um, without some study, is lost on us uh, in English. And I know, um, I I try and reference Greek as little as possible from the pulpit because English is such a great language and it reveals the Greek so well. Um, But let me read just a small portion uh, of this Greek passage and see it because you can catch the wordplay even if you don't know Greek. So... So in, a, in Matthew's Gospel it reads, Sue Petros, kai epetaute te Petra, oikodomeo. Did you catch the Petros, Petra? Jesus is making up a nickname, Petros, based on the Greek word for rock, Petra. So he's saying to Simon, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. So Simon, if if they had birth certificates in the first century, his name would have been Simon and his dad was John or Jonah. There's just two different uh, ways of saying the same thing. But Jesus is saying, Simon, your name is, if we translate rightly, Rocky. He's saying, your name is Rocky and on this rock I will build my church. And it's right in the middle of this wordplay that we really come to understand something fundamental and, and wonderful about the church. In fact, um, this is actually one of only two places in the Gospels where Jesus names the word church. He talks about the kingdom of God a, a ton, right? Which is very closely sort of overlapped as a concept with the church. Um, but this is only one of two places where he names the word church. So it's useful to pay attention even to the small details of this uh, interesting exchange. So the first thing that uh, I think is worth getting straight is uh, what is the rock that Jesus mentions is the thing he will build his church on? There's a kind of a handful of ways uh, you could slice this pie and so I'm offering uh, my best understanding of it but this is one of those things where you know it's it's not sort of cut and dried. We need to keep 
uh, chewing on these words of Scripture in order to understand them. But I think, first and foremost, in the light of the whole witness of Scripture, the best interpretation is to say that the rock is Christ himself. And not only does Christ refer to himself as a rock in other parables, right, when he says uh, the wise man is the one who builds his house on the rock, meaning uh, himself. Um, But even St. Peter, who gets named Rocky, St. Peter, in his first letter, refers to Christ as the rock. Paul also, in uh, 1 Corinthians, equates Christ with the rock. He says, chapter 10, the rock was Christ. So there can be a... There's not really a question when we look at sort of essentially what is the meaning of what he's saying. The rock that the church is built on is Christ himself. And and really, this is just another metaphor uh, to describe the reality described elsewhere in the scriptures with other metaphors, right? Christ is the head, we are the body. He's the cornerstone, uh, we are the building. He is the foundation on which the church is built. Uh, Any builder will tell you that a building is only as solid as its foundation. And and what a foundation, what what an encouragement that is then to us as the church. As Paul says also, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no one can lay a foundation except that which is already laid, Christ Jesus. That's a thing to be excited about. This isn't just some human institution sort of assembled for pragmatic purposes. This is something built on the risen, eternal Son of God himself. And the reason this is such a great surety is because the foundation guarantees the endurance of the building even amidst struggles, right? I mean, this is something we're seeing images as we watch the news of Hurricane Harvey coming in, you know, houses getting damage done. And and the building of the church, it does suffer damage from time to time, right? Like us, the church people, we make mistakes. Leaders in the church make mistakes. And sort of looking at the metaphor, you know, shingles get ripped off and walls may buckle, but the building will stay upright because of how solid the foundation is. The, um, I think one thing that sort of then is, might stick out as a bit strange in this passage is why does Jesus refer to himself in this sort of slightly awkward like third person way when he says um, on this rock meaning himself I'll build his church but what looks sort of like a sort of maybe a conversational peculiarity actually reveals his humble character we see it traced throughout this gospel passage Jesus' humility. He, he doesn't assert his own claim directly. Actually, never in the Gospels. He never just kind of struts out and says, Behold, here is who I am. He, he's inviting other people to come and see it and claim it. I mean, famously before Pilate, right? Like, he won't even answer him. Like Pilate says, Are you a king? But Jesus, you know, he, he, he's not like the fool in Proverbs that says, um, that praises himself with his own lips. He's humble and lowly of heart. And he's inviting other people to find out who he is rather than just kind of strutting forward himself. He doesn't, uh, he's leading, he's inviting his disciples uh, to come to know him. Who who do you say that I am? And even referring to his title, the Son of Man, the the man of heaven who stands between heaven and earth uh, in Daniel's vision, he says, he opens this passage, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself in the third person. Uh, I think we just see this, the lowliness of his character in this. So that's, um, I think, the first reason why Jesus might use this sort of roundabout way of talking about himself as, as the rock. Um, but the second thing, which is, uh, I think, part of why Jesus reveals this truth kind of enigmatically in today's gospel, 
is that the connection between Jesus being the Christ and our confession of that truth. And this is where why I bring up that tree falling in the forest thing at the beginning. Because if Jesus is the rock over there, kind of completely removed from my life, unconfessed as the rock by me, it, it's sort of like the tree falling in the woods by itself in that uh, terrible philosophical poser. It, but it, it, it may make a sound, but if there's no one there to hear it, what difference does it make? And what Jesus is saying is that he came into the world, took on flesh, died for you and for me as a ransom for the world so that we would know about it. It wasn't just something done in the corner kind of magically affecting us without our experience. He's actually inviting our confession, our participation in this truth that is true of himself. So in other words, the confession itself that Jesus is the rock kind of is part of the rock. Does that make sense how it's kind of both that both is true about him and it's true as it's confessed on our lips that both of those things are the solid foundation that Jesus is going to build his church on? Does it make some sense? Okay, a few heads nodding. As long as it makes sense for half of you. (laughs) I think, um, you know, the church, it, it doesn't exist in outer space, right? It exists here on earth among other places in Auburn and Opelika. And it's established on this first confession of Peter, uh, who recognized and claimed Christ as the rock. And it remains, it continues to be established by our confession that Christ is the Son of the living God, the true rock. When we confess like St. Peter, um, we, we, the church continues to be built on that confession. Anytime we claim Christ, as the son of the living God. as you know, There's so much in that phrase, right? It, it opens to us a vision of the Trinitarian nature of God, um, the son of the living God. All of a sudden we get the father and the son. Um, and as God, it, it also opens up the truth that he needs to be obeyed. Right? Like you obey the maker of the universe uh, inherently according to who he is. So anytime we confess Christ uh, with our lips in church, with the creed, or um, as we say, uh, where is it in... Uh, I think it's in morning prayer where we pray, you know, not only with our lips, but, but in our lives we would confess Christ. And we do that anytime we choose to follow Christ's commands over and against our own self-will or the temptations of the world or any other thing. Anytime we do claim Christ, um, I like to think that we kind of gain the same nickname as Peter gained. We get called Rocky. <laughs> Uh, I went, one time I went to a, a Lions Club breakfast, and I don't see the Lions. Are the Lions big down here? It's kind of like Rotary, but do they exist down here? They do? Okay, yeah. Um, I went to a Lions pancake breakfast one time, and the Lions, they all call each other by the name Lion, at least they do in Wisconsin. So they go, hey, Lion, Lion Tom, can you come help me with the bacon? Yeah, sure, Lion Bob. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was cute, a little bit cheesy. Um, but... But I really actually liked how it reinforced a common sense of identity. That, like, we're doing the same thing here. And so, as I was thinking about this sermon, I just imagined that if each of you had the name Rocky after your name, you know, like, Laurie Rocky and Mike Rocky, <laughs> uh, Rick Rocky, that sounds, that's kind of got a ring to it. Um, <laughs> if you ever go into wrestling, that could be your name, Rick. Um, Rocky Rick, there you go, yeah, nice, yeah, Rocky Rick. Um, but I think that's something wonderful, you know, um, being renamed is such a, a motif in the scriptures that when you come to encounter God, it changes you so much, you need a new name to express that encounter. Uh, it's true for us um, in our baptisms, and it's true, uh, it was very concretely true for Peter, right, for Simon. 
Um, where the sort of rubber meets the road of all this talk about the rock and the, the name Rocky, um, it really meets the road in the, the second half of the verse when Jesus says, On this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Which means if we remain true in our confession of Jesus Christ, not straying into errors about who he is or what it means to follow him, um, Jesus will build up his church through us, through our confession. Remember, I, I, it's so important to note who the, the subject, the speaker is in this verse. I will build up my church. That's Jesus speaking, still speaking. He will build up his church. And uh, one thing I think is great about this is, um, this is this is our strategy for church growth. <laughs> above all, all of the sort of shifting things that come with change, with all you know, with every season of you know, new ways to grow a church. The really the best way is to let God grow His church by confessing with our lips and with our lives His lordship. Uh, and so that's why I, you've probably come to know about me. I'm not crazy about sort of newfangled schemes. I'm interested in the old-fangled scheme uh, of just faithfully confessing Christ Jesus and knowing, trusting the Lord at His word that when we do that, He will build up His church. And uh, the church that he's building up, um, as is often said but worth repeating, uh, it's not just some you know, nice once a week uh, gathering. Um, this, is, this is a fortress in the midst of a cosmic battle. Right? The gates of hell will not prevail against us, against this body of Christ. Um, and, you know, it's curious, it's a powerful phrase, uh, the gates of hell. Um, you know, there's a couple of ways, again, of trying to understand well, the gates of hell not prevailing, what is that? I think uh, the meaning is at least that if we recognize, you know, hell is the place away from God. It's where you go if you die unrepentant of your sins. It's the sort of the end of the line for a life led away from God entirely. So the gates of hell are the entrance to that, the portals that would begin a journey uh, on the dark road away from God. So I think what Jesus is saying is that none of those doorways um, will be disastrous to us if we remain in the church in the true confession of Christ. So neither temptation nor sin nor even death, right? Um, None of these things uh, will outlast or or fully topple or destroy us as the church if we keep calling Christ our Lord. I I, um, I knew a, a, a Russian man who was uh, rather strange, kind of from the backwoods of Russia, but he would always uh, address these uh, emails um, to this group I was a part of as uh, immortal community. Uh, speaking to a group of Christians, it just caught me off my guard, like, oh yeah, we are an immortal community. Uh, that's part of what it means, the gates of hell, death itself will not prevail against us who confess Christ Jesus. The, um, and there's a slight danger in sort of um, taking the great truth of the church. You know, we sang that processional hymn which praises God's work in the church. Um, the danger is sort of passively just kind of hoping, like, well, I go to church on Sunday, I'm in the church. Um, great, I've got all the blessings of being in the church. And while it is a blessing to be a part of the church, it won't be efficacious to our souls passively. Right? We have to actively plunge into the life of the church, into the true confession of faith and the understanding of what that confession means and the life of worship and the participation in the sacraments and the, the regular feeding on God's grace in word and sacrament if we wish to be sort of nurtured and really protected uh, by this great fortress of the church. Um, of course, you know, 
every metaphor has its um, limits and speaking in church as a fortress might have this sort of dangerous connotation of we're trying to keep the world out. Um, it's actually the opposite, right? The church is, we stand always as a witness trying to invite the world in. Like, come into this fortress. We prayed a prayer I just love over baby Jane when we baptized her last week. Um, that, we, that she would be received into the ark of Christ's church to weather the storms of this turbulent world. What a great picture uh, of what the church is. As St. Peter, in fact, would use that picture, that the church is like an ark. An ark always inviting um, the, everybody in the world to come in and confess Jesus like Peter, as the son of the living God. And in the simple act of that confession, to begin to be saved from death, and sin, and to come to know and love God forever. So, um, you know, it's a common phrase you kind of see uh, founded on t-shirts with things like God wins, and that's true, but the church wins. God wins through the life and the ministry of the church. And uh, we talked about this on Thursday night Bible study, that uh, especially in, you know, uh, tumultuous political times, you know, Empires will come and go. Leaders will change. Persecutions of the church will come and go. The one through line, and this is the great advantage of having 2,000 years of church history behind us, the one great through line is the church. It actually stays the same, continuing to confess the same faith, while you know, dozens of empires and leaders have risen and fallen uh, in the meantime. It's such a great uh, surety, such a solid place for us to be because Jesus uh, has guaranteed it to be so, because it's built on the rock himself and the confession of it. So I, um, I suppose, you know, I always think like, you know, what do I want this sermon to do? Uh, and usually I don't reveal that explicitly, but there's enough sort of, you know, unpacking of an ambiguous text in this sermon that I, I want to actually say explicitly. What I hope is that you would just be encouraged that God has given each of you and me, all of us, such a a gift in giving us a visible, tangible thing, the church, uh, as a means to be established strongly on the one rock, Jesus Christ. I think we are right to always give all Lord and honor and glory to the risen Jesus, but to, today also to be thankful for the gift that the risen Jesus has given us uh, in, in giving us his church. I think it's something we can forget or just be ungrateful or, or neglect to think about. So that's what I offer you out of this passage of uh, St. Rocky. Uh, <laughs> Amen.